Well, welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all other people at the table. I'm one of your hosts, Dungeon Master Mitch. And I'm your other host, Dungeon Master Neil, a.k.a. Jote Moniak. And today we are jumping back into our world building series with a special episode for numerous reasons. One, we're talking about tombs today, which is going to be super duper fun. But also our guest is none other than Jim Zub. So we're really excited to have him join us and talk about tombs. And he'll tell you a little bit why he wanted to talk about tombs when we get into our interview section. But before we jump into the meat, if you are a Patreon dragon, of course, this week you can look forward to another Storytime episode being dropped. But also, if you are a gold Patreon dragon or up, head on over this week and check out the homebrew content of 20, that's right, 20 adventure hooks that can be given to your PCs from the spirits of their ancestors when they are in their family tombs. This homebrew content was inspired by the discussion me, Neil, and Jim had in this very episode. I hope that you enjoy it. So without any further ado, though, Neil, you know what time it is. It's time to head to the meat. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meat? Looks like meat. Back on the menu, boys. So today on The Meet, we have a very, very special guest. It is none other than Jim Zub. And in all honesty, Mitch and I had a difficult time figuring out what we should highlight because there's so much from Jim. But he's a, a writer, a comic book artist, and so much more. And for our listeners, some of the great things would be the new D&D comics, Rick and Morty versus D&D, be it the comic, be it the adventure, the young adventurer's guide, I mean, Skull Kickers, let's be honest. If you like D&D and you haven't gotten Skull Kickers, you are missing out. But Jim, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. If it's something that I love, you've worked on it. Marvel, oh, thanks, man. D&D, yeah. Rick and Morty. Like, it's, oh, and, yeah. we're, and I blew, we're super pumped to have you. I blew his mind. I was like, oh, don't forget the Samurai Jack comic yeah, as well. I didn't realize that was your work. That's, That's amazing. right. Yeah, I've been doing a whole lot of wonderful, uh, you know, nerdy stuff over the last Oh, geez, you know, pro- probably coming up on almost 20 years I've been working in animation and then comics, and uh, but always had a deep, deep love of gaming. I've been playing That's D&D fun. since I was eight years old, and uh, getting to work on this stuff now is uh, a surreal experience, to say the least. Fantastic. That kind of is a good segue into our, our next question, which is very broad, but it's kind of up to you on what exactly you'd like to talk about. But for our listeners out there who maybe aren't familiar with uh, with you or want to get to know you on a more deep personal level, Jim, <laughs> uh, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So uh, my name's Jim Zub. I'm a Canadian storyteller, I guess you'd call it, like a writer uh, based here in Toronto. And uh, I've been working in the nerdly arts for, like I said, almost 20 years. Started in animation, moved over into kind of illustration, concept art, and uh, some comic book work. And now primarily I'm a writer. 
Um, so I've been writing comics very pretty steadily for the last nine years. I do quite a bit of work for Marvel. I've done creator-owned books at Image, um, and I have have had the the real uh, joy to work on a lot of role-playing game adjacent stuff or direct stuff. Uh, right now, I'm doing the official Dungeons and Dragons comic, and I've been doing that since fifth uh, edition launched in 2014. And we're coming up on our fifth miniseries called Infernal Tides. Uh, and I'm very excited about that. In addition to that, um, earlier this year, we launched a really special line of books called the Dungeons and Dragons Young Adventurers Guides. And they're kind of like a dream come true for me. It's like coming full circle and bringing kind of the magic of role playing to a younger audience or new players in these real nice small kind of guidebook format with new artwork and content. I I've seen them and they are signed by you to my children. So I may have a special place in my heart, but I want to focus on the way that you said that it, it's for young or new players. Mm-hmm. It's still written in a way in a reading level that is still beneficial to anyone to go pick that up and to give to your players so that they can better understand the game without necessarily reading, oh, if you do this, it's this number, that number, this number. They're not rule-centric. They're kind of narrative-centric. And so our approach was basically like, if someone is hooked into the concept of role-playing and can understand the crunch, that's no problem. Jump in with the starter set, jump in with the player's handbook or what may have you. But if you've been intimidated by that stuff or you don't understand the engine running under the hood, or maybe have no desire to right from the get-go. You just want to have fun and, and spend time with your friends or family or whoever you're playing with. This breaks it all down into core choices in terms of race and class. Here are the kind of features and abilities. Here's a bunch of really easy to understand and organized information with all new text and all new artwork that just makes it simple. What do you want to be? Like for me, it kind of breaks it down to a really simple series of questions. Like this is a fantasy story. You are the main character. What do you want to be in, you know, what is your kind of role in this story? Whether that's narrative as a, as a personality or kind of role as a character class and your, what you're fulfilling for the kind of group dynamic. And so that approach to it, um, you know, in my own experience and from what I've had bringing a lot of new players into the game, was a very potent way to do it. What I would usually do is kind of have the player's handbook in front of me and offer choices to a new player without having to worry about charts or even stats initially and just get them brainstorming creatively what kind of character they wanted to be and then show them how the dice relate to those choices. And so the Young Adventures guides are kind of codifying that stuff in a formal manner and, uh, you know, being able to do that for, for Wizards of the Coast and uh, 10 Speed Press, which is kind of the imprint at Random House we're working with that specializes in kind of that, you know, audience uh, has been just an absolute thrill. It's such an um, important thing. I, and I love that there is material there to make the game more accessible to to young and new. Um, mm-hmm. We were talking before we started recording uh, about just the the mountain that was creating a new character in uh, previous editions. Uh, specifically, we were talking about 3.5 and how a lot of DMs out there listening have definitely had new players join the table and have had that moment of like, 
all right, how do I ease them in? Because being like, here's the character sheet, make up your character is daunting. Yeah, they take for granted the stuff that we have internalized. You know, like I said, I've been playing now for, you know, over 30 years. And in, in that sense, the stuff I just take for granted, attribute roles and stats and saving throws and all these different materials and, and the dice and all that stuff. And it's not until you bring a new player to the table and you sit them down and you start talking about the, just the options at their disposal that you realize how daunting that can be for a lot of people. And, and we take for granted that it's very simple. It's very easy. No, no, it's no big deal. Just choose these 10 things and <laughs> ignore all that material and go to this page. And you don't read this thing in order. You got to jump over here and go over there. And now here's a gigantic spell list. And each one of these choices you make will determine your success, you know, um, while everyone else is ready to go. And you're supposed to just sort of catch up. And so for me, um, as someone who's, like I said, brought in a lot of new players, it was really about kind of pulling myself back and taking this really hundred foot view of the thing as an, as a, a storytelling device, you know, cause that's what role playing is for me and for a lot of other people. And if you want to get involved and be, you know, active, what are the easiest pathways to understand this? And what are the choices that we can lay out in a very clear manner that allow them to feel like they are empowered to tell the story that they want to tell? Perfect. I I feel like we've touched a lot on this topic, but is there anything else that you're currently working on and the caveat that you can talk <laughs> about um, that you want our listeners to know about? Well, it's so, it's so interesting. You know, we're doing the official D&D comic series is kind of a different set of creative muscles because I'm a comic writer by trade. I do a lot of superhero stuff for Marvel. I've done a lot of different, you know, books. And, and D&D is special, not only for me as a hobby, but also to a lot, you know, millions of people around the world. So when you're trying to make a novel or make a comic, like you're making a narrative, D&D is not generic fantasy. And that was one of those things that when I sat down to work on the comic series, I wanted to impart a certain feel that the world has to feel right and it has to feel like D&D. But not only that, but there had to be a sense of kind of this rush of, of um, momentum to the combat. And there had to feel like there was this, almost like you could feel players making difficult decisions or being put under the gun. So when you read the D&D comic, there's a bit of, I, there's some zaniness to it in a sense, that, that things can take a, a strange turn or a dark turn because that's the way a game session tends to go. You know, Things can turn on a bad roll and now you have to kind of make adjustments or people are on the run because you know, an encounter has gone badly and someone gets injured. And that feels D&D to me. You know, I joked around with the Wizards of the Coast gang and I said, you know, as much as you want to do a Lord of the Rings, maybe epic kind of story of destiny, a lot of D&D is like, you know, five people go into a hole and they get in trouble. Yep. And that's kind of fun. There's a, there's a joyous kind of pulpy, adventurous quality to D&D that I really love. You know, simple choices gone wrong or, or you know, um, people in over their heads uh, is kind of what I feel like good, fun D&D can be. And so I wanted to bring those kinds of qualities to the comic, that it feels like how it feels at the table, even though this is a narrative that I'm building, even though I know where the story's going, there's a sense of spontaneity to it. There's a sense of kind of energy to it that 
that feels like D&D to me. And, and when people tell me they get that from the comics and they really enjoy it or inspires them in their own sessions, you know, then I, I feel like I've done it right. Like I'm, I'm keeping up the faith, if you will, you know, it's a, it's a nice thing to be a part of. That's great because like, as, as a gamer, you can watch like a movie like Lord of the Rings and you see Gandalf in the minds of Moria and he can't remember which way <laughs> to go. And you go, ah, Gandalf rolled the crit one on his survival <laughs> check. Right. So like you can, you can put that into movies, but, uh, or, or books or whatever it is, but it's great to have a gamer on the other side of thing, creating the story with that in their mindset so that as the readers are reading through that comic and they they think of that in that moment of like you know if this if this was pcs at a table playing characters this would be what was going on like above the table above like you know the the story we actually have the author there thinking and the same exact thing while you are creating those comics. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other thing too, for me that I think is, is really important is that, you know, comics are a visual medium. And so as much as possible, I'm not going to do pages and pages of lore like you might get in a novel. I've got to keep it visual. We've got to keep it kind of peppy in terms of momentum that there's got to be really cool set pieces and we have to set up things to make a good comic. Like I'm not just telling a D&D story, I'm telling a D&D comic book story. And I've got to play to the strengths of the artist, and I've got to play to the strengths of the medium. And that's one of those weird balancing acts that you're trying to find. So our stories tend to be more action-packed faster than a novel would be, because I don't have pages and pages of prose to kind of build up slow atmosphere. I got to just hit it, you know, let the art team really deliver on the potential, you know, the visual uh, medium, and then we're just going to rip right into it. And so there's a nice, like I said, an energetic quality to the comic that I have a lot of fun putting together with our crew. And, you know, the artists that we've had working on the series have all been amazing. Um, I've got, I'm near and dear to uh, Max Dunbar, who is the current artist yeah. on Infernal Tides. He was the artist on Legends of Baldur's Gate, which was our first one. And that was his first major comic gig. And so there's something really special about coming back with Max and doing this one now. He and I both worked on Descent into Avernus. I worked as a story consultant and he worked in the art concept team. And so now we're bringing that same material into the comic book space. And we both know it really, really well. And we both helped build it. So it, this particular one, Infernal Tides, is extra special to both of us. And I think we've come in like, as strong as we've ever been like pushing to show people what we're capable of and that this is going to be pretty uh, seminal sword and sorcery stuff. Obviously, if you haven't checked that out, go and check out all of all of the things that Jim just mentioned, but his comics, everything, uh, Jim, we told you that it was coming uh, and it's time <laughs> it's here. Yes! We have a surprise question for all you. Right. This one comes from one of our Patreon dragons, DM Jude and DM Jude asks, what philosopher from any time period would you have at your table to play D&D or any tabletop role-playing <laughs> game? He says the philosopher can be anything from Socrates to Buddha, Kant to Confucius, Nietzsche wow. to Peter Singer. There's your question, Jim. Uh, That's a big one. That is a big one. That is insane. <laughs> yes. Let's say Nietzsche, That just for the sake of bizarreness there wouldn't that be a yeah. thing yeah. okay so if you were the dm yeah what kind of campaign would you run for nietzsche 
I would love to run Nietzsche in uh, the demiplane of dread. I would take him to Ravenloft. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just be like, yeah, there's your hopelessness. I feel, how, yeah, how I feel like that? he would love that. <laughs> yeah, no, that I would kind of love to see that, you know, take the Baroque stuff all the way there. Yeah. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Oh, man. And then imagine flipping that on its head and having him be the DM for that campaign, cool. you being able to play. Yeah. Would that be yeah. fun? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Or it could just be this like absolute depression fest. He, he might be that DM that like you see the memes about, right? That it's like a rock falls and your whole party dies. <laughs> hey, man, I've, Chris Perkins ran me through a game where we started <laughs> and we had to roll a D20 and find out that was the number of hit points we still had remaining when the game oh started. Oh my goodness. So wow. I have, uh, I have been under the gun of some there pretty harsh DMs uh, in, the, in, <laughs> in my time. That's fantastic. Don't want to awesome. roll a crit one there. No, That's right. So thank you DM Jude for that question. And thank you, Jim, for that awesome answer. So that's going to have us jump right into some world building tombs because this is going to drop days, mere days. And by the time you're listening, it's probably, probably already out the young adventurer's guide to dungeons and tombs so we figured jim you might have some ideas on uh tombs and how to put them into a game i do i do actually it's been it's been such a cool experience building the the young adventurer's guides because it gives you a chance to re-explore material even stuff that you know and try and codify it and break it down into smaller kind of bite-sized pieces and I find that kind of stuff fascinating, both as a process, but also as a way to kind of reinforce, uh, you know, strong kind of basics, how this stuff works and why. I think a lot of times, you know, DMs get themselves into a situation where they're trying to build an adventure and they want it to be all things to all people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And when you simplify, I think it's stronger for it. I think some of the best adventures that have existed in D&D have been built around a simple concept or a broad uh, location that lends itself very well to kind of focus. And uh, that was one of the things I noticed. The Dungeons and Tombs book has got sort of an overview of six um, iconic locations from D&D lore. And they're very different from each other. But what we notice with each one is that they have a pretty strong theme at their core. They have a strong mood. They have a, a you know an environment that lends itself to certain types of creatures or certain types of adventure, and everything sort of builds off of that. And I think that that's uh, a smart way to sort of approach your own adventure building, rather than trying to make it all the things. You know, sort of go okay, let's narrow this down to this one particular type of environment, and then break down within that what its potential is. So, kind of working off of that idea of environment. Uh, for for DMs out there who are looking to have an adventure uh, take place, whether it's like a one shot or maybe this tomb, like talking about the size of the tomb, it could be multiple sessions uh, inside of a tomb. But what are some things that a DM, when world building and creating a tomb, want to start off thinking about like when it comes to location size maybe ownership of the tomb or even uh yeah like i I think that location can be really big like is this off like in a an area that is away from civilization or is it in the center of a city uh can lead to some very different types of adventures with the tomb 
Yeah, I think for me, a lot of times when I'm building narrative, and I think game design has a lot to do, you know, with narrative as well, obviously, you're trying to think of set pieces, or you're trying to think of big moments that you build in or around with your stories, right? So if we're thinking about this tomb, you might be thinking of a central location, or even an end spot, a climactic space and what kind of threats you can put our heroes up against. But then you sort of build backwards and forwards. You know, you're, you're filling in gaps. Well, if this exists, you know, if this is a burial of the royal family of this, you know, ancient culture, well, then what would they need in and around that? You know, how is it something where it's deep in the ground or is it you know, within a mountain or a pyramid, whatever it might be, those kinds of choices then start to determine the sorts of um, physical things you have to overcome. How do I even get to this place? You know what I mean? So is this a matter of discovering it in the first place? Is it a matter of mapping it? Is it a matter of guardians and traps and all those different elements? They start to sort of feed off of each other. And that's where the kind of thing where, you know, obviously you flip through the monster manual and that can generate ideas, but you're trying to organize stuff thematically, both in terms of difficulty, but also in terms of kind of varying up your threats. So you don't just want each encounter to be a battle. Some encounters you want to be exploratory, other ones you want to be more about, um, you know, obviously combat, but then there can be stuff where you don't know necessarily the outcome. You could talk your way through a situation or you could find a particular uh, riddle or you could find a shortcut or you could negotiate with some other explorers or things like that. And that's the kind of stuff I really love is that you don't just want to make, you know, you're trying to avoid repetition in both design and in terms of threat so that you're giving as many of your players and the types of players that you have something to uh something to really sink their teeth into you mentioned their um royalty uh like a a royal tomb and i think typically that's kind of along along the lines of when we're thinking about tombs what i think of is whoever created this tomb there's some sort of money and power behind it like either this is a, a rich noble family, a roy, it's a royalty, um, or at the very least it could be the whatever the government is set up. If it could be a citywide tomb, uh, but the government I think would be the one that would be backing the money to build this tomb in the first place, which would lead to a weird question of like what kind of tomb is a tomb that's doesn't have money behind it, right? Uh, that it's like a it's was a makeshift tomb and what does that look like? But with the idea of it being some sort of power or royalty uh, that creates this tomb kind of along the lines of what you're saying, that should be reflective of when the adventurers step into this tomb, like marble floors, big pillars, statues that could be magically imbued to, to come alive and, and guard the bodies in the sarcophagi that are in this tomb. But I I don't picture most tombs, of course, cobwebs and such, but I'm not picturing like a wooden coffin there. I'm picturing a beautiful sarcophagi with the, the person actually carved into the top so that you can see who was buried there, right? I went uh, last year, I was at a convention in Vienna and we actually went to the Royal Crypts and I was amazed at how 
sword and sorcery they looked like it was absolutely crazy it's all the kind of visuals that you imagine literally you know big carvings of weeping angels on top of sarcophagi and all this kind of you, stuff and i was you like wish you had a, a torch and a sword in your yeah i was just yeah. like this if i saw this in a movie i'd be man you guys are landed yeah. on pretty thick you know uh and this was real that was what yep, was yep. so amazing about it so you can i i think the other thing to sort of imagine is whether it's, um, you know, it, it's funny that you mentioned like, well, you're assuming that there's a royal family or some sort of rich money behind it. I love when those kinds of questions get posed because then you sort of try and go, well, what if it wasn't? Like, how can we mm -hmm. go against the grain? So if we said to ourselves, well, it's the site of a famous battle and um, that happened maybe underground and it's been sealed now because it was cursed or it was sealed because the people, the the local townspeople don't want to acknowledge it anymore. So it's a form of a tomb, but it's more like a, you know, like a bad memory or a bad piece of their history that they're trying to seal away and pretend never happened. So then you could have a very rough kind of form of a tomb where it's more like a site or a ruins, but it is a burial ground of sorts. You know what I mean? There's all kinds of different ways you could approach it, which I think is kind of cool. But, but again, you're trying to figure out storytelling as purpose, and then you're trying to broaden that out to a series of events or challenges that you're putting your heroes up against. And the minute that something is starting to become too static or too boring, then you sort of add other elements to it. You could say, well, what if part of these ruins have already been ransacked? So we can totally change the feel of this place. And now you're trying to climb over broken sections or you're trying to excavate, you know, areas that have already been dug up or, or stuff like that. Or you're saying, oh, there was some sort of a natural, there was an earthquake, you know, and so part of the entire tomb oh, is yeah. actually split and shattered. And now we could move down to a lower level because there's a big crack in the floor but there's other dangers or there's maybe water seeping and rot and destruction. So you're just trying to change up people's perceptions so that they don't get too used to any one particular thing where they go, okay, here's a door. Here's another door. Here's a hallway. Where are the stairs? You know, you're like you're trying to break people out of that static feel. Um, you know, there's a classic module uh, called Pharaoh that, that Tracy Hickman designed. I think it was the, might have been the first module he did for for Dungeons and Dragons, and it takes place in a pyramid, and there's all sorts of verticality to it, like you're moving up the pyramid, which feels so different, even though it's the same kind of dungeon process. Now you're moving vertically instead of you know down. You're moving up, yeah. and a lot of the levels are very small, and they get smaller as they go because the pyramid's getting tighter, and so the rooms are becoming a little bit more. Like you're moving through levels quicker, but they're more dangerous. And I thought that had a really unique kind of feel to it when I remember when I originally played through it. Just just changing up people's expectations so that they're not your players aren't becoming bored or they're not figuring out a pattern. I love that you brought up, and I I'd been thinking about it before. First off, yes, 1982. So I believe it was probably one of the earliest ones that um, Tracy and Laura Hickman did. Um, throwing that out there. But oh, I'll throw out also, it's I3 in case anyone's interested. Uh, drive through RPG. It'll save us all. It's, it's pre-Ravenloft, man. It's yeah. But the idea that like 
truth is stranger than fiction when it comes to this sort of thing because ancient civilizations, even in our own world, and how they view death. Because the only thing I can keep thinking right now is the catacombs of Paris. Right. It's miles and miles of tunnels with millions and millions of bodies in it that you can still go pay and see. And recently, it had been closed because of flooding. Right. Literally every element you had kind of brought up are things that are actually happening in this place that honestly, like you said, if I put it in a game and my players were completely unaware, it might feel like my hand was too heavy with the idea of what a tomb could be. So that's to say there's a lot of real world inspiration. Just look around and be careful putting all of it in there because your players might not believe you. (laughs) Well, I think this is the thing, too, is that you're trying to give... Like I said, you're trying to vary up those challenges as much as possible, but still have a sense and a structure to it that they feel like things connect together in a way that makes sense. So if they're seeing, you know, burial um, shrouds and then you have a, a, another room where the ceremonies take place and they can see the materials that are used, they're like, oh, well, this leads to that. Even if they discover it out of order, there's a sense of cause and effect that gets created with this stuff, you know, or sometimes I'll see a lot, a lot of dungeon masters will throw traps into a location. And I say to myself, why, like, why would someone have trapped this particular thing this way? Is this place never going to be used again? And they're sealing it up. Well, that's one thing. But if this was a space that was being used regularly and you have an insane amount of traps just because, well, they'll never see it coming. You're like, well, true. It also is kind of ridiculous. Like you want to be able to, you know, have a sense of, of, um, purpose behind it. Like, okay, this is sealed off because this is where the treasure was kept or because they didn't trust this thing or sometimes because they're trying to keep creatures in or, or, or something like that, you know, just, uh, having a, a broader sense of why this stuff works the way it does. I love when you have a dungeon and the purpose of it in a sense has changed. So if you had a tomb and then there was, say, I don't know, burrowing creatures or something have taken hold in part of that dungeon and turned it into their nest. And so you think you're getting one thing, and then all of a sudden now you're having to deal with this other threat that has its own cohesive reason to be there, but you didn't see it coming. Because from the outside, there's no way you could have known that there's a whole other type of creature in there that's already taken hold and is using it for a nest or using it, you know, as the staging grounds for their little uh, home and invasion or whatever. I love that part of what you're saying because with a, with a tomb in general, a tomb is supposed to be the place that whoever is being laid to rest there are being exactly that, laid to rest. They're, it's supposed to be sealed off until somebody else is being laid to rest. It's not typically going to be a place where you're going to have creatures running around, or at least that wasn't the intention of the structure. But uh, Jim, I think you said at some point, like, what if there was an earthquake? Like now you have an opening in the wall and that beasts can come in, uh, burrowing monsters. Um, Of course, the adventurers might open up the tomb and think that they are the first ones to enter into that tomb for 2000 years. But in a fantasy setting, let's be honest, when you've got necromancers who see a tomb as like a supermarket where they can go and pick out whatever zombie they want, when you have grave robbers, when you have monsters that might see a tomb as the perfect place to start a lair, 
it's going to be a lot more rare for a tomb to when you crack open that door and you step inside as adventurer for it to actually be untouched from the outside world. Right, right. And and if it is, you know, then what can you do narratively to make it interesting or what puzzle or thing can be unraveled, you know, between them? And that can be kind of interesting too. Like who is laid to rest and why, you know, are they even even where they're put in the tomb and the type of decorations or finery that's around them gives people, you know, clues as to what how it all fits together. So there's sort of a, a narrative to unravel there as well. Yeah, you were you were mentioning that um, a bit towards the beginning of you you don't want the only encounters that you're in a tomb to be like actual battle encounters. You want to offer different types of encounters to your players. So what are some other types of uh, encounters and difficulties and obstacles? that an adventuring group led by a DM into a tomb might face? Uh, I think you can, obviously there's, there's, you know, the kinds of negotiations that can come about, whether that's spirits, not everything has to be there to kill you. you. Yeah. Right. Sometimes there's spirits that could implore you to find something or to retrieve something or to return something to the tomb. Right. Or you could have, uh, you know, riddles or madness or all that kind of stuff. You could have, um, what has happened here? What, what were the sequence of events that led to this particular configuration? And you unraveling that is an important way to understand a bigger part of the story. You know what I mean? I think those are really interesting um, challenges for players. It can be tough because you don't want to lead them by the nose. And some groups are more, some groups love mysteries and some of them just want to get to the combat. So you kind of got to be able to read your players. Some of them want to get into the drama and the theatrics. You know, if you're running the classic Ravenloft, some of them really like the love story and the tragedy, and other ones are just like, "All right, I want let's to fight by vampires. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to I murder the bad guy. Let's find the coffin and pop a stake in him, and and you know, clean out the treasure, and that's fine too. It's just a matter of sort of gauging that stuff. And I, you know, no matter what my group is into, I I want to try and push them just a little bit outside of their lines and see if I can surprise them or put them into uh, a state in, in a thought process that maybe they wouldn't have expected. You know what I mean? So I have some groups that are not puzzle oriented, but I'll try a smaller little series of traps or buttons or levers just to see if that kind of thing maybe comes around and they go, Oh, you know what? I'm not normally into a puzzle, but that thing kind of was cool because I realized how it fit together or something like that. And you're not trying to, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to turn that group into the puzzle group, but <laughs> you, you want to just make sure it's not roll initiative, fight, 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 clean out the room, next room, you know, draw the box on the graph paper and go. You know, and I think that that's really important as well. And it's how you present it. Like the, the players are looking to you as the dungeon master to set expectations. How you describe a space, if you describe it in cold, hard technical terms, this door is to the north, it's 30 by 70 or whatever. You know, at these squares, you can see, and you show them the map and you're putting the miniatures on the map. Then what you've told people is this is a tactical encounter right? If you build up atmosphere, if you're describing a lot of mood and sound and sensory information, 
then there's an assumption that that carries purpose as well. And that, that we can use this. There's a reason why you've said that, you know what I mean? And they're going to explore more often, or they're going to ask questions about those particular features. And, and I think DMs don't always uh, realize how much influence they have on that just in how they go, you know, and I've been there, I've done the whole gamut. You know, sometimes you're a little bit tired and the players are like <laughs> searching and searching and searching a space and you're like, oh, there's nothing here. And part of you is like, just wants to tell them there's nothing. Let's go to the next room. And then part of you is like, do I add something? So then we have something going on here, you know, like spontaneously kind of bring more into the mix because they seem really intent on finding something. Maybe, maybe there should be something there, you know, and that can be kind of a weird spontaneous thing that it, that grows out of a particular encounter you know i think for you had mentioned it like adding an npc to subvert that expectation that going into a tomb is just murder town right and the, right. the, the thought that came to mind was maybe there's a skeleton a zombie somebody is undoubtedly going to slash it and maybe it's more of a trapped spirit trying to inhabit a body to have a conversation because it's bored it's just stuck here. It can't go anywhere. It just wants a conversation. So ha the, the image I see is this zombie dropping and another one popping up and be like, okay, hold on. Uh, and having that conversation and that dialogue and setting a different expectation than we should kill everything. Exactly. The other thing I love sometimes is if encounters are a little bit too stock where um, a room is just waiting for you to open it up and then the interesting thing happens. And it feels like the entire encounter has been waiting like a sealed Tupperware container that you pop it open. I love the feeling that the world has been doing things while you weren't there. So you encounter people in the middle of a conversation or another battle or people are arguing or something has happened or, you know, that's where the things like the Tomb Raiders can be so fun, where someone else has already gotten there and ransacked the place. And you're like, man, they ripped this place off. And then you hear them and you go, they're still here. Oh, yeah. And so you're now you're trying to move a little bit quicker or you're trying to catch up to another group of thieves or you're trying to, you know, cut them off or something. I think that that changes the dynamic because now time becomes important and, and sensory information becomes important instead of just being like, well, we can take a short rest anytime because nothing's going to happen <laughs> until we go to the next room. You know yep. what I mean? I love when encounters come to you you don't always want to do it. You know, sometimes you let your players get their rest in or what may have you, but it can be fun to break up the monotony of assumption where they're like, we're going to camp here. Oh yeah. Maybe that wasn't the best place to camp. You know what I mean? Maybe that wasn't the best place to take a break. Maybe you've been searching here too long and someone just stumbled into your space and now you have to sort of change up, you know, your, your pattern. I think that kind of stuff is, is really important narratively speaking. And I think it's really important in terms of entertainment because you give the players, you know, again, you're pushing them outside of their comfort zone and, and shaking up the story. So we've talked a lot about tombs themselves, and we've talked a lot about encounters in tombs, whether it's combat and the creatures you might encounter or, or people that you might encounter or uh, puzzles or whatnot. Let's transition into, into our kind of final focus on talking about tombs, and that's the adventures that are centered around tombs. So for DMs out there, like, 
they want to use a tomb in their world. They have cool ideas for a tomb. What kind of adventure do they get their players to go on specifically centered around tombs? I think it's really important as much as possible to give your players some, at least someone in the party, some connection to what's going on there. Mm-hmm. You know, the classic like D&D module, like anything or, or, or an yeah. ancestor or uh, a servant or just something because, you know, the, the, the classic D&D module is, you know, you've been told to go to this cave because treasure. And it gives you a reason to go, but it also gives you every reason to leave if things aren't going well. You know what I mean? If yeah. you give people a, um, a narrative reason to explore and to carry on despite uh, difficulties, I think it's a much stronger push. You know, it's got so much more momentum to it. And it doesn't have to be huge, but even just a little bit of something. You know what I mean? That's so good though because like thinking about a pc who has some sort of like whether it's family connection or friends to those or ancestors buried in this tomb uh, as we were just previously talking about like kind of stepping away from that kick in the door kill everything mentality now you have a group of adventurers and one of them is looking at that that skeleton coming towards them to fight and recognizes the armor that skeleton is wearing as one of his, like as right, they have a sigil or, or some sort yeah. of marking that you How know that they're connected. Yeah. You're not going to want to just destroy that skeleton and defile uh, your, your grandfather or whatever it is. There's more <laughs> of a heart there. There's more role-playing opportunities there. How do you deal with this problem? Yeah. I think that's the other thing too, about even the exploration, there's a sense of, well, break it doesn't matter because it's a dungeon. Yeah. And if you give people, again, this is an ancestral home or this is a place where yeah. we're looking for a particular relic, but everything here is precious or has some emotional value, you know, then all of a sudden it's like there's, there's interplay there. And there's also, you know, some internal conflict. Maybe some members of the party are like, look, we got to bust this place up because that's what needs to get done. And the other person's like, hey, we got to be careful. Yeah. This is this is our the ancestral home, or these are my people, or this is you know, my grandfather promised that he would guard this place, and now you know, I have sort of inherited that duty. We have to investigate this particular problem, but that doesn't mean we just trash the joint. Well, and then when you come across grave robbers or or necromancers that are raising uh, your kin from the dead, how much more personal is that? for the player rather than just a simple like oh yeah we have to fight them because they're defiling this place it's a no they're defiling my ancestors exactly and the same thing with magic items and stuff too that it's no longer just like well does this give me the bonus that's better than my current one yes no toss it over my shoulder now it's like well this is actually my great uncle's old you know their particular trinket or this is their particular wondrous item or something like that. I think there's something really cool about that. I think there's something really engaging and and interesting about that. You know what I mean? And even if you find out things about the family that, you know, the player wasn't aware of or or didn't work into their original backstory, you've broadened their storytelling potential as well. Mitch, you had brought it up, and this is the one that I can't get out of my head, so I'll, I'll say it so it goes away, is that clearing it out for someone else. 
I mean, that could be just as much a familial tie as it is a business venture. And it could be that your your group of adventurers don't want to break all these things because basically that's going to come out of their cut for accomplishing that for someone else because it could be a very long-lived race. Maybe it's elves and they're going, they want to put someone new in the tomb, but they know that it's been a thousand years since they put the last person in. So then your players need to go through and clear everything out. But again, clear out the, the vermin. More, yeah. The more, the more you break, the more you bought. So <laughs> they don't, they want to be really careful with how they do that. And even on top of it, maybe the reason they find out is because one of the players is tied to this elfin family. And there's a lot of ways to try and kind of like you mentioned, Jim, hook as many people for as many reasons as possible. And it could be that if you find certain things that maybe don't belong in the tomb because it's been a thousand years, but they happen to be magic items, they're yours to keep. Right, right. And again, those those connection points and those ways to build narrative, I think is so important. You know, when people talk about D&D games, sometimes they might talk about a great role that they made. And that was when I rolled the natural 20 or whatever. That's when I rolled the you know, <laughs> critical fail and the, with the whole bridge collapsed. But most of the time they're talking about character moments. And those are character moments when they make those roles and how they you know, deal with them or a crazy negotiation or a, or a big decision that they had to make. And so giving players those moments or giving them springboards for those kinds of moments and those difficult uh, things that they have to choose, I think just, you know, drives more memories that you're building in the stories that, that, you know, that a good adventure can, uh, can become. Because if you don't do that, then it becomes a cold, hard, well, did I get anything cool and how much money did we get? You know, and there's just obviously there's a simple visceral joy to leveling up into adding numbers to numbers. I have this much gold. I have this much stuff, but the stuff that'll stick with you is generally, you know, more kind of story based or character based kind of stuff in, in my experience. Something that uh, you said, I think when we started talking about encounters, uh, Jim, you, you mentioned what happens when you walk into a, a tomb and you're encountered by spirits there, but they're not hostile. Uh, in fact, they're, they're looking for help. They're looking for aid, whether that's returning something to the tomb, uh, perhaps releasing them, their spirit from the tomb, whatever it is. And I'm now I'm having this thought of, you know, there's always that classic discussion of, well, where do you start an adventure? Like, do you do it in the classic, oh, here, you're in a tavern, and now you're going to get uh, an adventure from the tavern. The summons, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah like, like, to me, I think starting in a family tomb with, there's plenty of your ancestors buried here, but their spirits have things that they want for you to do. And maybe your character is the only one in your family that has this gift to be able to see the spirits and to hear them and to hear what it is they, they want. And that could set off on numerous adventures. And then also to have that tomb be a constant place of importance for you to travel back to, which leads to all different other kind of adventures when you have people coming into the tomb that's not supposed to be there. Yeah, one of the things I like doing as well is sometimes I'll I'll start an adventure in a way that seems like it's going to be something mundane, but then you're thrust into adventure 
at a moment they're not expecting. So, you know, you could very much make it like, oh, uh, you know, the cleric gets told they must deliver this thing to this basic temple. And then when you get to the temple, they say, oh, we're in the middle of the ceremony. We need you to come with us to this little crypt. And then you step into the crypt and you realize, oh my God, there's ghosts there. There's spirits. Something has disturbed the tomb. You know, game on. Like that's something, <laughs> something very simple has become something much more nefarious or interesting or mysterious. You know what I mean? Rather than it just being like, go to this cave retrieve this thing Mm. you've been pulled into it by very mundane actions or by you know assumptions that you had about how this was going to play out so we often do this where we kind of come up with the idea of homework if you will i mean it's the most fun homework you'll ever have but we essentially throw out ideas for people to go out and experience things and get more information on tombs I want to make the joke, just fly to Paris, go to the catacombs, it's fine. Um, probably not as uh, tenable as some of the other ideas, but do does anyone have ideas of movies, comics, other RPGs? I mean, or- I mean, my homework, I, like you, you started that as a joke, but first of all, if you have the opportunity to do that. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely do that. That's, I think that is a wonderful place to get inspiration is actually visiting a tomb but I think my homework would be there are so many examples um, of different tombs around our our world <laughs> that we can look at and see like how different cultures and races. Oh, uh, yeah. Do have. research on burial practices in particular. Yeah. And I think that that will lead to all kinds of inspiration where you're realizing, oh, I didn't even know that you could do that. I didn't know that these were, you know the way you can intern a body or the way that, you know, particular ceremonies or that those kinds of things can lead to creative problem solving and questions, particularly when you look at that and you say, well, this is how they do it in real life. What if we add magic to that? What if we add a particular, you know, twist to it? And I think that that's the kind of stuff that pays dividends creatively. You said at the early on in the episode, Jim, that we like, I don't, remember the exact words, but you basically said we need to think out of the box when it comes to tombs to not present the same blueprint every single time with a tomb and to look around our world and see the difference in tombs and burial practices and to learn from that. And then, yeah, like to put that in a fantasy setting, uh, a tomb made by goblins is probably going to look different than a tomb <laughs> made by orcs. And, and, a tomb well, and, made and, by and that's what's, and, what's so interesting when you have monsters you can add so much of a feeling of culture to them that they don't just feel like generic enemies if they have burial practices, if they have, you know, the way their layers are put together are are interesting instead of just being generic, right? If you think about how a space is used and why, that becomes a much more interesting thing to discover all the way around. Absolutely. So... I'm going to throw out there a game by Bully Pulpit Games called The Skeletons. Oh, man, I know that one. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah where you could you play as the skeletons and then basically your kind of agency as that entity, if you will, comes when you have to defend the tomb. Yeah, it's like reverse dungeon kind of stuff. Yeah. It's really cool. So I was at Gen Con last year and that game came out yep. and a friend of mine told me to track it down. And I read it and literally it's a session. It's a thing you could play in one session. Mm-hmm. You are playing these guardians of a tomb and you're running this little narrative. And then essentially when the lights go off, 
time has gone by. It could be a year, it could be decades, it could be hundreds of years, and a group of adventurers is coming into the tomb. Yeah, it's such a, it's such a strong narrative hook. As yeah. soon as someone told it to me, I was like, yeah, I got to buy that. Yep. I would, and I would also say that if you can, and this is a thing for every person, every group, but if you could use that to build a tomb that you then later put into a game, you would blow your players' minds because they're also the ones that created that narrative. They're the, and so you're, you're taking Jim what you had said and putting those hooks at a meta level. I think you could do a cool thing where if the players maybe walked into a particular spot and, and they were trying to communicate with, the spirits and the way that the spirits essentially told their story was all of a sudden your players got pulled into a narrative where they became the guardians. Yeah. And so for the next half hour, 45 minutes, you're going to play it from their point of view. It's a role playing encounter, maybe even a combat encounter. Yeah. And then you, when you finish win or lose, you pop back to the present. You go, that's what you just felt. You relived their, you know, their guardianship or whatever you want to call it. I think that would really stick with players. As something oh, unique. that's good. That's fantastic. Yeah. Stolen. That idea has been officially stolen. So we have one more question for you, Jim, where can people go to find all the awesome things you're doing or where do you think they should go? Cause they can literally just Google your name and find a plethora of things. It's true. I mean, the, the hub site is jimzub.com. So it's just J I M Z U B.com. There's like previews and interviews. I actually have a lot of tutorials about how to write for comics, how to pitch your story ideas, how to find artists and even stuff about like taxes for creative freelancers and things like that. So if you're interested, some people want to get into this, but other people just find the process, you know, interesting to sort of break it down and to see what goes on behind the curtain. Um, You'll find all kinds of those things at my website and I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram and all that good stuff. And that's all linked right there on the site as well. So if you want to see what I'm up to, you want to try out the official D&D comics, or, you know, if you're, you pick up a copy of uh, Descent to Avernus or the Rick and Morty versus D&D RPG adventure, any of that stuff, uh, I've had the distinct pleasure of um, contributing to, uh, I would be thrilled, you know, and, and let me know what you think of it on Twitter or whatever. Well, Jim, once again, thank you so much for, for coming on to the Dungeon Master Block. This has been a fantastic conversation with you, and we hope that you come back sometime in the future. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it, and I hope your, uh, your listeners keep on gaming. We just want to thank Jim again for coming on and sharing all of his knowledge it- and the plethora of amazing things he's putting out for D&D, for Rick and Morty, for Marvel, for anything you love. I mean, is it, I don't know that it's, it's not too bold to say that Jim Zub is in your mind and in your heart. Um, but if you want to talk to us about the tombs that you've added or anything else, you can always email us at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. And of course, Go to iTunes, leave a five-star review, and we'll read it on air. You can follow us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's at DMs block. And you can like our Facebook page. Both of those places are the best place to go if you'd like to keep up to date with what's going on with our show. We have our Patreon member shout-out of the week, and this week's Patreon member shout-out goes to... Brad Dunn! Yes, so thanks so much, Brad, just for supporting 
this show and all the shows on the Block Party Podcast Network. We really appreciate it. Brad is a dreaded gold dragon, so we hope that you are enjoying all the rewards uh, coming your way uh, for that supporting level. And as always, the Dungeon Masters Block is a proud member of the Block Party Podcast Network, where you can check out other shows like Geek Wars, We're So Bad at Adventuring, Detentions and Dragons, and more. And with that, that's all we have for you for this week's episode of The Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all other people at the table. I'm DM Neil. Good night and good luck. And I'm Dungeon Master Mitch, reminding you to always keep on Dungeon Mastering. not inspiration it's not wisdom and it's bad advice to establish dominance immediately kill one of your player characters Goodbye.